Hi, I'm Joel, and with Mark, I greet you and I invite you to turn in your Bibles or you find it in your bulletins, also your devices. You might have it there, and please silence your devices. Psalm 32. Please turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 invites us into a safe space in a scary way. It invites us into a safe space through confession, the confession of your secrets, of your sins, your suffering, your shame. And everyone here has secrets. How many here remember Andre Agassi, the tennis player? I see some hands. Yeah, I remember growing up watching Andre Agassi. My grandma was a huge tennis fan, and so I would watch. And he, when he first came out, he's this young guy. He's a bad boy tennis star with this long, flowing, blonde hair, really flashy. And he promoted for Canon, you know, the, pic, the camera company. He promoted for them images, everything, you know, with his long hair and flashy style. Well, we bought in. I bought in because he was polished, he was popular, and he was peaking. I mean, he was the next great tennis player at the time. In fact, in 1990, it looked like he was going to win the first of his eight Grand Slams when he made it to the French Open final. And he was actually heavily favored over a guy he had just beaten. But then disaster struck. You see, the night before the big French Open final, he washed his hairpiece with the wrong conditioner. That's right. Andre Agassi was going bald at age 20. He washed it with the wrong conditioner and he looks at his hairpiece and to his horror, it's falling to pieces. So the next day, right before the match, he is praying, not that he'd win the match, but that these bobby pins would hold on his hairpiece and it not fly off his head and drop to the court like a dead bird that just got shot. And with it, his image that he's been promoting all this time. No surprise, he was so concerned that he was gonna be exposed during the match, he lost. And it was one of the most stunning upsets in all of Grand Slam history. And Agassi, immediately afterwards, he ran off the court in shame and tried to find a hiding place. He actually wrote about this in his autobiography, where he openly confessed this and a whole lot more secrets. He was using meth, constantly drinking even before matches. He was miserable. And he absolutely hated the sport of tennis that his parents had groomed him to be so good at from early age on. It's quite a shocking revelation to most people, including myself, who thought Agassiz is a guy who has it all together. He is so blessed, right? But then we discover later it was all fig leaves. We talked about that last week, right? Fig leaves. In Genesis 3, we saw humanity's fall from glory when they rebelled against God. And what did they do? They immediately began hiding, first behind fig leaves, then off in the bushes, and then hiding behind excuses. And what did God do when he saw his fallen children? He called out, where are you? Where are you? He knew where they were. You see, this was an invitation from God to find forgiveness and healing by confessing all to God. Friends, that is what Psalm 32 is. An invitation to confess what we've done, what we've become, 
and to find from God a better covering and in God a better hiding place. Now, I know confession is a scary thing for some of us because we all have secrets, right? To expose all that is wrong requires real trust that God cares. So let's pray that God will help us to believe this, that he cares, and also that we can then step into that truly blessed life we find in Psalm 32 through confession. Let's really go to God in prayer. He can change us here. Father, we, uh, we were once able to be in your presence, naked and unashamed. And we want to know that again. So will you send your spirit and increase our faith that we might truly believe your love and trust you with everything and come to discover the joy we can only have in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Psalm 32. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So today we are in the third sermon of a series on Christian worship. And today we're considering the confession of sin and shame and the forgiveness that happens afterwards. Now I know that some of you came to Heart City and you thought this is really strange. Because most evangelical churches don't do this anymore but actually confessionless churches are the oddity in Christian history. Ligon Duncan writes, Confession used to be a necessary element in any genuinely Christian service, but it's not happening today because there is so little awareness of God. Instead of coming to church to admit our transgressions and seek forgiveness, we come to church to be told that we're really pretty nice people who do not need forgiveness. We're actually such busy people in fact, that God should be pleased that we've taken time out of our busy schedule to come to church at all. Hmm. I think two things stand out there. One, little awareness of God. And number two, we're really pretty nice people. I think Lig is right. Let me ask you, how aware are you right now 
that we are in the presence of Almighty God, the creator of the entire cosmos, that, that you're in his presence. You have an audience with him right now. In our first sermon on Hebrews 12, we learned that we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How about the other thing? Do we think we're really pretty nice people who don't really need forgiveness? I mean, generally, do you think I'm, I'm pretty okay? Okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad off. I mean, look around me. Jesus' very first words in his public ministry when he went out, Mark 1.15, repent and believe. And he preached that again and again and again, and then he went to the cross died a horrific death to shed his blood to pay for your sins. Jesus didn't think we were really pretty nice people who didn't need forgiveness. So if we see Jesus' forgiveness, this wonderful offer, why don't we come to church? Why don't churches, people come to church eager to confess their sins? Pastor, can we please have confession of sin? Well, let's be real. <laughs> Publicly voicing all that is wrong with Joel is like really awkward and uncomfortable. We'd rather get fired up and reassured instead of getting raw and vulnerable. That's why most churches structure their services around our felt needs in order to fill seats. But there are losses if we become courteous consumers as opposed to confessing Christians. There are losses if all we ever seek in our life is to be nice people and faithful churchgoers. There are losses for us losses for our communities, and losses for God and his glory. Losses for us because Psalm 32 begins by repeating how blessed we are every time we receive forgiveness for confessing. And that word in blessed, we hear that all the time. I say blessings all the time to people. In the Bible, this is a huge word. Blessing means to actually be made whole, to find total fulfillment, profound happiness. It's what everybody in the Old Testament was desiring. I want to be blessed. And to be able to get that through constant confession. They knew this. Trusting God is wants to heal us to the core of our being. Everything that's wrong with me. There's also losses for others. Because what our world needs right now, what our neighbors need, is not nice people who have their act together. They don't need Christians without sin. They need Christians without secrets. We're actually no different from any other religion. If we say as we grow spiritually mature, we have less to confess. Think about it. That's what all the other religions teach. You're ascending up the mountain to nirvana, God, whatever, whatever it is. For the Christian, it's a descent. Why? Because we believe in the resurrection. It's about humility. That is the Christian's stance. Losses for us, losses for others, and also losses for God. Because his heart grieves over our condition. Did you see that in our call to confess? God looks down and his heart is breaking when we walk around in our sins and act like nothing's wrong with us. They had two choices in Genesis 3. They could know good and evil, or they could know God in relationship. And they chose information. We want to have lots of facts about everything over intimacy. And what happens? They go solo and they find themselves ashamed. 
and God pursues them. He goes after them. But what do they do? They make excuses, right? Oh, all the wrongs out there. And God has to cast them out because they won't confess. God's heart was so broken in Genesis 3. We hear about it again in Genesis 6. But after Genesis 3, basically, here's the summary of the next 927 chapters. Okay, you don't have time to read it today, obviously. The good news. You are loved unconditionally. You are loved without restriction. You're loved without qualification. You are loved wherever you are, however you are. You are loved even at your absolute worst. And you are loved so much, God doesn't want you to stay there. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. You barely believe that. You struggle to experience that. Because you know right and wrong independent of God. So your instinct is to make yourself lovable by your own efforts, by your own resources. Right? To become, in your own eyes, what you already are in God's. We call the good news grace. We call the bad news sin. And the way we discover that grace is by confessing our sins. And that's Psalm 32 in a nutshell. I have three words for us today. Condition, confession, cure. Condition, confession, cure. First, our condition, verses 1 to 4. We see our condition here. We call it actually total depravity. That's a theological word. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean that every part of us has been infected by sin. That's the impact of sin. And sin actually covers a lot of ground. Just look at these first four verses in Psalm 32. There's transgression. What does that mean, Joel? It means when you cross a line that you're not supposed to. That's what Adam and Eve did when they grabbed that fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. Then there's sin. And that means to miss the mark. Think about playing darts, right? I want to hit that bullseye. I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Here's all the great things that Joel wants to do today, how I can just knock it out of the park. I can do mattering things. And then I uh, get in the car and then I curse somebody on the road. And then my coffee starts to run out. So by lunch, I'm already starting to get exhausted with trying to do my best. Oh, and then by afternoon, I'm just cutting corners everywhere. And by the time I get home, I just want to go and pull my covers over my head. Okay, I've missed the mark. I know what I want to be, but I haven't done it. Then there's iniquity. You know what that means? It means that we're twisted inwards. We're inwardly turned. We're self-focused by nature. Children, in that confession there, that was Psalm 51, it actually said, you were born in iniquity. What does that mean, Pastor Joel? <laughs> that means that when you guys were first born, you did not have to take a class on how to be selfish. You threw a tantrum when you wanted your way just by nature because you're selfish. We're all inwardly turned. All of us struggle with this to the time we die, not just children. We're born in iniquity. And then there's also deceit, which means to mislead or to cheat. And we try this all the time. We actually can deceive ourselves just as easily as we try to deceive others by putting on all these fig leaves. Here's who I am, right? Friends, there's our condition. <laughs> but don't hear that as condemnation. That's what the devil wants you to believe. We actually sang about that in Before the Throne of God Above. Satan is the accuser, not God. 
Satan wants us to despair as we look at us. God wants us to depend as we look at him, as we look at Jesus. What David has just described are the symptoms of a disease that our Bible calls sin. Sin is a diagnosis, and friends, it is serious if it is left unchecked, if it's left untreated. You're actually dying, my friends, from it. Do you notice how David then talks about his bones wasting away, his strength? Sin has corrupted every part of our being. That's our condition. But part of us doesn't like to hear that, doesn't like to admit it. You ever talk to someone who is like clearly sick, but they reject a doctor's diagnosis? I have. I've had talked with folks who've gotten really angry at me for saying you're not okay. It's not fun. I say that not only as a person who works at the hospital, but I say that as a pastor. You're not okay. <sighs> but what would you think of me if I knew you had cancer? If I knew that? But I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And so I said, hey, you're looking so good today. You know, there's, you're just great. What would Jesus think if that's the way I treated his precious flock, his precious sheep? That's why we take sin seriously at Heart City Church. Friends, we have a preparation for confession every week. Why do we have this here? Because God wants you to be made whole. He wants you to understand that blessed life, to experience it. Pretty nice people. They only want God to deal with what's on the surface. But God wants to go deeper. That's why he actually gave us his word. Because it's living, it's active, it searches us. And if we let it, it reveals what's underneath the surface, things we don't even see that need healing. That's what our new meditation verse teaches us from Hebrews 4.12. If you look down at the bottom of your page here, I want us to work on memorizing, mem meditating on this verse. So let's read it together. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word here is described like a supernatural scalpel, able to divide what seems indivisible. It can penetrate to the very deepest part of you and expose what is sick, the false self that needs to be cut away. I've met with many patients at the hospital who are about to go into surgery and they're scared. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. It's a scary thing to admit something is wrong, to acknowledge that it's true, and then to trust a doctor with your life, to uncover, to close your eyes, to lay back, and then let them do to you what you can't do for yourself. That's what confession is, my friends. Our second point. That's what confession is before God. Let's look at verses 5 to 7. Now, David has already told us before this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. What does forgiven mean? Well, it means to actually have your burden taken away from you. Any of you carry burdens? That's what forgiveness is. He says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. He's talking about here the blood of the sacrifice, but we know it's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all our sins. 
He also says, blessed is the one whose iniquity isn't counted against him. The idea here, the theological word is imputation. Think about like, say you had a, a class, all right? A big class that you had to pass. You had to get an A in. And then you take a test and you bomb it, right? And you show up to class the next day, you get handed your F, and then the teacher stands in front of you and says, guess what? I'm not going to count this test against you. And more, I decided to let one of your classmates here, he took the test as well. He got an A plus on it. His name is Jesus, and I'm going to give everyone his grade. That's what imputation is. And David, seeing all this blessedness of confessing all these sins, he confesses it all to God. Look at it. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's confessing all kinds of things. He's not just a general kind of, God, I've been not too good today for you. No, he's being specific, honest, real, raw. This is the path to healing, to admit our condition, to grieve over how every single sin we've done actually separates us from God. Notice we confess our sins to the Lord because we're not sinning against a rule. This is not a rule book. This is a personal invitation from Jesus from God to know him. When we sin, we're not sinning against the rule, we're sinning against the God, against God Almighty. It's personal. That's why it's so bad. We use Psalm 51 for our prayer of confession, where David, he's actually confessing his greatest moral failure ever in his whole life. Psalm 51, well, here's what David did. Here's the scene. He was on his palace roof as king. He looks down, sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. She's bathing. So, even though he finds out that she's the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, Uriah, he calls her over, gets her pregnant, and then he has Uriah killed off to cover it up, and then he marries Bathsheba to try to pretend like the pregnancy was his. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against Bathsheba, actually Ahithophel, the family. He's actually sinned against all his people because he's taken advantage of his office, right? But David says to God in verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned. And I want to say, what? All these other people are wrecked because of you, David. But David understands that sin is in the first place always personal against God. In fact, anytime you sin, it's always because you've refused relationship with God and then it's spilled over into your relationships with people. Rejecting the vertical relationship always spills off into the horizontal. That's why David turns to God that he may be healed, so that his bones, broken bones, may be mended, his heart cleansed, that a right spirit be renewed, and the Holy Spirit, which we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit won't be taken away. And David found all this and more through this confession. Psalm 32 is actually a later reflection, that's what most scholars think, on Psalm 51 that God answered this confession, Psalm 51, of all this horrible stuff, and he is now experiencing the blessed life. And so he keeps it up. He keeps confessing. But it only comes, this blessed life, when we stop hiding and start telling our secrets to God. Instead of running from God, we run to him in all our mess, trusting that he still loves us, just like the prodigal running to that father, right? And discovering his love. And this blessed life, 
this abundant and fulfilling existence. It's available to each and every one of us here today. Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So let me ask you, have you recently, or maybe any time, have you woke up and your first thought is, how in the world did I get here? Why am I so stuck? Why does my life feel like a prison? What is the point of me getting up and posing and pretending and playing the game? How did I wander so far from home or from what I had intended to be in my life? Ever woke up thinking that? Those longings are heavenly homing beacons, friend. And your misery is actually a mercy if it leads you to confess your mess. Your misery, that the misery David feels, leads him to confess. David here is inviting prayer for healing, wholeness, restoration for everyone. Let everyone who is godly, he's saying. David says, please, it's available. And don't get hung up on the who is godly part. The irony is that those who see how ungodly they are and acknowledge their sin to God, who turn to God to restore, they're the ones who are godly. That's how you become godly. Now, maybe you don't trust God because of deep hurts. I get it. I get it. You wonder where God was in your life when you got smacked upside the head with a cinder block. There's a lot of folks who feel this, and I get it. So they turn to God. They, they turn away from God to their own resources. They spend all their life trying to put on an image that they're okay before the world. Is that you? Mary Carr is a well-known writer who wrote a memoir about herself called Lit. She was actually describing her self-made hell. Of course, she was hiding it. She's a really successful college professor in literature, but she's hiding the fact that while she's teaching Lit, she's also often Lit because she has a drug habit. She's constantly drinking. She has a closet drinker. And she ends up so depressed and suicidal, she finally has to check herself into a hospital while there, she's just starting to lose it. She's going crazy. So she goes to the only place that she can be alone, which is the bathroom. And there, she suddenly starts screaming at the God she doesn't believe in. Where were you when? And after letting God really have it for a while, suddenly she starts to whisper thanks. She says, thanks for my husband. Maybe somehow he'll still take me back. Thanks for my son, Dev, who was so sick as an infant, but still made it through. And then it hits her. She writes this. I only came to the end of myself because someone needed me to keep it together and I couldn't. She saw that she'd been hiding the truth. She was confessing her secrets. And Carr writes this. By checking into the hospital, I've said in some deep way, uncle. I've stopped figuring so hard and begun to wait, sometimes with increasing hope to be shown, and then it hits me. I'm actually kneeling before a toilet, the throne, as other drunks call it. How many drunken nights and slung over mornings did I worship at this altar, emptying myself of poison, and yet to pray to something above me, something invisible before now had seemed degrading. <laughs> 
she sees the irony on her knees with her head resting on a toilet. But she's got no more pretense, no more show that she has the resources to keep it together. And as she pours out her secrets to God, the poisons that have actually been really destroying her soul, <laughs> she discovers at his throne of grace that she is being divinely purged and she discovers the love of God there. She quit hiding from God at that moment and found God to be her hiding place. Verse 7, found God to be her hiding place. And friends, this all came through confession. Some of us still may not get it. So David turns all wise guy here on us in verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. So what's David doing here? He's telling us if we still haven't got it yet, you're acting like a stubborn beast. Now, normally this is where Pastor Joel will go and target cats as they're well-deserving. But this verse actually reminded me of Bella, the most stubborn dog that I've ever had. Yes, we love her, but her breed doesn't like to listen, much less stay near to you. She runs off, and thankfully she's really big and slow. But she won't come when you call her. She won't stay near to you. We have to put a leash on her and tug her at times to keep her safe because we love her. That's the picture here. But it's a mule. What does a mule want to do? It wants it to go its own way. And so you have to pull the bridle, right? Until it hurts enough to make the mule go back straight, get on the path for a minute. And then what does it do? It veers off again. You have to yank again until it's still so uncomfortable that it decides, okay, I'll obey. I've met quite a few mule men and mule women in my time as a pastor. They come to me because they're hurting, they're uncomfortable from bad choices in their life, from sin. I show them from the Bible the way they should go. It means to repent also then, not just confess, but repent. And they repent for a while until their situation gets better, and then they begin to veer off again, right? And they go back to their bad choices. You know what that is? Not true confession. It's grief over the consequences of sin, not grief over the sin itself and how it separates us from God and hurts others. It's sorrow for self, not sorrow for sin. They only confess is what causes them pain. I will put it out there. They're not really sorry like David, who had a heart after God, which is remarkable when you think about it. Here's a guy who's a liar, a cheater, a murderer. In fact, how is this guy described as a man with a heart after God? Because of confession. Read his psalms. They're just peppered with him, seeing how much his sin hurt God, hurt others. He wanted, he knew God's heart for him, and he wanted to confess. He wanted God to heal him, to bless him. So he became a man of constant confession. So as to receive God's grace. As one theologian said, it's only when we understand the magnitude of our sin that we can appreciate the magnitude of his grace. And David got this because read his Psalms. They're peppered with him being real and raw, naked and ashamed, putting out all his secrets and saying, and there's some I don't even know about, so search me, God. Know my heart. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want you grieving over me. Don't be too sad for me. Heal me. Friends, big point here. 
You cannot understand God's unconditional love apart from total exposure. You can't. Our final word is cure. Our final word is cure. Psalm 32 is actually Augustine's favorite psalm, and he had it inscribed on the wall by his bed as he was dying because he just wanted to meditate on how it was the cure. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What David knew, what Augustine knew, was that the cure comes when we see our need and go to God and trust with our secrets. I know this is a hard thing to do since our first parents chose choosing knowing good and evil versus they could have known God. And we're now hardwired because of this to evaluate our good deeds and our bad deeds as evidence of our relationship. And you know what this does? It always leads us down one of two paths. We're either all right or we're all wrong. Either we see ourselves where it's pretty nice and we don't need to confess, or we see we're pretty rotten and can't ever be forgiven. Notice what happens in either case. We're gathering evidence and we're looking at us. And every time we know our relationship by evidence, by facts, by all the things we compile on top, we're actually moving away from trust. For every evidence you add on, you're moving away from trust. The knowing that comes from experiencing God and his cure. Trust comes first. And then that evidence can support that. But you have to move in faith. It starts with faith. And we can know God. That's the wonderful thing, friends. I hope you hear this. By confessing, sharing all our secrets, spending time, confessing it how, oh, yesterday I looked at something I shouldn't have. Confessing how I spoke harshly I shouldn't have. Confessing what I was really thinking in that conversation. Confessing. I was really sorry because when I last confessed, I wasn't really sorry. Confessing how I struggle to do verse 11 sometimes and be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Confessing, sharing it all. We need to bear it all before God like we would a doctor, sharing all our symptoms. How can he possibly help you if you're not telling him what's wrong? It's a good way to think about it. And Jesus, friends, he is the great physician who came to help sick sinners Mark 2.17, and he's a good doctor, and he's a sympathetic Savior, as we read in our call to worship from Hebrews. You see, Jesus' heart is like the Father's heart. In fact, Jesus is showing us the Father's heart walking around on two human legs. We tend to think God is near when we're doing all good, when I'm knocking out of the park. Oh, what a great pastor Joel is. No. Actually, God is most drawn to us when we're weak and when we're hurting, when we're stuck in sin, like any good doctor. I'm going to be around sick people. I'm going to be there for them. And he's also sympathetic. Tyler Statton writes, Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is a healer, yes, but he's the kind of doctor who has dealt with the same disease. He's a doctor treating lung cancer who also had lung cancer, felt the effects, and even donated one of his lungs for a transplant. So you're talking to a doctor with experiential compassion. That's the kind of doctor you have in Jesus. And I love that because that makes me love Jesus and want to run to him more and more with everything wrong with me. And the more I run to him, guess what happens? The more accepted I feel. 
And the more accepted I feel, the more I'm able to admit I'm wrong. And the more I do that, well, then the more I'm able to be real with other people. And that's what people need around us. They don't need Christians without sin. They need Christians without secrets. You know, every revival, I've been looking this up. I've been reading on this. It seems like every revival I read about starts with confession. All the way from Acts chapter 19 to the revival in Hearn Hut we talked about a few weeks ago to the First Great Awakening to even the Jesus movement that some of you may remember. They all start with people saying, I'm not a pretty nice person. I need to start confessing all my junk, which I know that is the hardest part. You see, people, we're afraid of God. Whether we admit it or not, we're all afraid of God. It started with the hiding in the garden, right? But here's the thing. I'll close with this. The only way to hide from God is in God. How do you do that, Joel? Look again at verse 7 as we close. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God is our hiding place. We hide from God in God. How can we hide from God in God? By going to the cross when we confess. Because there we see a Savior who has no secrets. Remember he was stripped naked? Totally exposed before the world. Dying shedding his blood to cover you and me. And he sacrificed all to save us. And don't miss that last part of verse 7. David is not the one rejoicing about being safe and restored. Who's rejoicing? God. God is the one shouting with joy every time we confess our sins because he gets to save us and heal us and restore us. I think that's something we fail to see so often. We know God loves us, but God enjoys us. God enjoys us, Becca. God enjoys us, Dallas. God enjoys us, Lucinda. He enjoys you. He enjoys every one of us when we come to him. He's so delighted when we confess. He celebrates. You see God throwing a party every time? He's like, yeah, I get to heal you. I get to restore you. He's delighted, friends, to hold us and to heal us. Why? Because that's his heart, his heart for you. Let's pray that we take that in. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, what manner of love is this? That we should be called your children. And once by nature we were children of wrath, far from you and in league with your enemy, the devil. And yet, in your love and in your mercy, you sent your son to save us, to pay for all of our sins. And now he's seated at your right hand and he's looking down at each one of us and saying, oh, Oh, Father, look at them, get it. And oh, great, another one coming with confession of sin. Help us to believe that you celebrate every time you can pour out your heavenly storehouses on the places in our lives and in our world where there's so much destruction that sin is wreaked. Lord, I pray that you will help us to believe this, help us to start confessing, and help us to stop being a people with secrets, but to be a people who can expose all because we know we discover the depths of your love every time we do. Have mercy on us, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.